Well, before we pray, let's hear our text this morning from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to consider this lovely psalm this morning, we pray that you might increase our hope, strengthen our memories of what you have done by the hope that we have held out to us in the gospel and in this psalm. Blessed to us in Jesus' name. Amen. As I grow older, and yes, I'm very much aware that I am, seems to me that the more I read and see and learn, the less room I have in the old grey matter to store all this new information. I wonder if you've ever thought that. But your brain can only store so much. And if every day there's new information to be added, then there's not going to be enough room up there to fit it all. See, the older you get, the more memories you have. And those memories, as you know if you're getting older like me, can get a little jumbled up. And I reckon it's because of this lack of room that some memories just get dropped. Of course, the important ones remain. And memories... Memories that you hold special and that have shaped you are less likely to be forgotten. But those things you used to be able to remember that you don't need to anymore, they might get the chop. Well, right or wrong, that's my theory. But in Psalm 126, the psalm writer lets us know that whatever was in his memory was certainly not going to be forgotten. And it was going to affect not just what he recalled of the past, but what he also prayed for in the present and what he hoped for in the future. Now, the psalm writer is not specific enough to tell us exactly what the occasion was that he was remembering. Calvin was absolutely certain that this was the deliverance from the children of Israel out of exile from Babylon. And maybe this was what Ezra was writing about as he wrote this psalm. Looking back to that deliverance from Babylon and asking God for another deliverance in a specific time. Most of the other commentators, though, aren't quite sure when this deliverance occurred. Some point out, for instance, that even though the words used here in the first verse uh, restore the fortunes, even though that language is used of the deliverance of Israel out of exile from Babylon, it's also used to talk about the restoration of Job's fortune after all things had finally been remedied by God for him. The beautiful thing about this is, of course, that this means that the psalm is generally applicable to all the people of God. We don't know exactly what the circumstances of the deliverance were, and that helps us in terms of the application of it to our own lives. But let's think on this brief but wonderfully instructive little psalm. First, notice how this memory governed how the psalm writer recalled the past. 
If you look at this psalm and verses 1 to 3, it's apparent that these verses contain expressions of gratitude to God for a past deliverance. Memories of a time when God, in some powerful way, delivered his people Israel from great distress. So the psalm writer's memory, even though we don't know exactly what it was, was certainly one that he was dwelling upon as he wrote the psalm. This activity of God, this deliverance for his people, this memory of God doing something so great was something that he could recall so vividly that it was like he still had the taste of it in his mouth. And that's what this psalm is about. It's a memory that's been turned into a prayer. Now, what I said in my introduction about my memories is just as true for you. Memories shape us and define us. Sometimes they may even refine us, warning us against a certain action in one direction or encouraging us to take an action in another. And while we may often let our memories bring us to the point of nostalgia or to sentiment, it's not every time that we let a memory take us all the way to prayer. But this is what is happening here. In recalling the past, especially the past actions of God in the lives of his people, the psalm writer here is drawing upon that memory for a whole new purpose, to bring to mind what God did, and then, as we will see, what God can do. And there are a couple of aspects of this from the psalm writer's point of view. For a start, it was a memory that was almost too good to be true. Whatever it was that God did for his people left them feeling like it was a dream. Something overwhelmingly amazing. This is what he says in verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Have you ever had one of those experiences? Surely you've known a dream so vivid that you've woken up and wondered if it was real. But this isn't that. This was a time when God's people were fully awake And what God did for them was so stunning and overwhelming that they began to think in the other direction. And this is so good, it feels like a dream. Could the Lord really have done this? This deliverance of the Lord was so surprising, so overwhelming, that those who saw it were like those who were dreaming. Then came a second effect. You see this in verse 2. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Reading between the lines makes us think here that whatever God did for his people came at a time when they were so burdened in distress, in hopelessness, in despair, that it completely turned the tables, turning eyes filled with tears and grief to mouths filled with laughter and joy. And we could go through the Old Testament and pick out events and experiences of the people of God where his intervention brought about just that. Think of the people just escaped from Egypt. Pharaoh's army coming behind them, mountains beside them, the Red Sea ahead of them, nowhere to turn. What does God do? He parts the sea and they cross on dry land and then rejoice and exult in the Lord on the other side. And then the third effect is seen in the second part of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. 
Whatever it was that God did caused the nations to take notice and testify to the Lord's power in delivering his people. That was certainly the case when the people of Israel finally made it to the borders of Canaan, 40 years after crossing the Red Sea, only to meet Rahab the Canaanite in Joshua 2, and hear her confession that all the inhabitants of the land were in total fear of the Lord because the God of Israel was, as she put it, the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her confession was not what Israel had done, but what God had done. And the nations were sitting up and taking notice. If there were newspapers that day, this would have been headline grabbing. So here is the psalm writer recalling the past, remembering what the Lord had done remembering the taste of despair being turned into laughter and joy. Have you got a memory along these lines? What do you remember of what the Lord has done for you? My own conversion came about in Christmas, 1977. It's a long way back now, but I can still recall what it was like. The scriptures made sense to me. Jesus and his death for me became real. And once, where there had been rebellion against him and reluctance to meet with his people, now there was submission to him and a new thing called fellowship. I remember that conversion. How are you going at remembering yours? What great thing did the Lord do for you? What is your testimony to his saving grace? See, every gospel conversion is a story of deliverance that ought to fill our mouths with joy and laughter and find its way into our witness, our words and our songs. And isn't that just what the Psalms are? Are they not songs of redemption, songs of deliverance, songs of conversion, songs that celebrate all that the Lord has done for his people? And so it's this memory that the psalmist has in mind and in his mouth a taste of deliverance, of, or we might say salvation. And the psalm writer is saying to us, I remember it, I know what it felt like, and I know the taste of it. And because of that, it affected what he would do in the present. Where secondly, we note that this memory of what the Lord had done directed how he prayed for the present. Quite suddenly from reflecting on the past, the psalmist comes back into the present in which he needed that deliverance all over again. And so the memory became a prayer. And the prayer is very simple but comes with a powerful illustration. The prayer is this, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Go back up to verse 1, right after the label of the psalm is given. It's a psalm of ascents. The pilgrims are singing this on the way to Jerusalem. They say, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And now they're praying, restore our fortunes. Now that the memory has been fully brought to bear upon his mind, his prayer is, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Do it again, Lord. I remember when you did it before. Never thought I'd open my eyes without tears again, but you saved us. You filled our hearts with laughter. You filled our mouths with praise. Please do it again. And he's got this picture in mind 
for what he wants the Lord to do as he remembers the past, saying, Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev, or the Negev, was the south country, an arid, parched desert south of Judah that abuts up to the wilderness of Sinai. It's desert. And in the summer there, it's so dry that the places where the winter streams ran, where the rivers flowed, are now just dried, cracked gutters on the floor. The desert. And the psalmist is praying in these terms. In the Negeb, in the summer where it's as dry as a bone, and there's not a green branch in sight, and there's no grass, there's no sign of life, but Lord, if you would restore our fortunes, You would bless us like we are blessed when the winter rains come and the streams overflow and almost overnight grass and flowers grow up again. It's a vivid picture you might know. If you've ever seen our own outback green with life, you'll know something of what he's talking about. You know, you never get to a point in the Christian life where you're beyond crying out to the Lord to restore our fortunes. It doesn't matter how far along you've gone in the life of discipleship, whether it's 20, 40, 50 years, you never get to a point where you don't have to cry out to the Lord like that. And isn't it kind that the Lord in a way says here to us, okay, you pilgrims, on your pilgrimage through this weary earth, Some of your souls are as dry as the Gibson Desert in summer. But if you cry out to me and seek me, I'll replenish what's lacking. And more than that, I can cause streams to flow in the desert place. We heard about that in Isaiah 35 this morning. And laughter and joy to replace your dryness and sadness. So the picture we begin to form here from the psalmist is something that we find again and again In the book of the Psalms, it's a very simple principle. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Bring it to mind and let it shine a light upon your present. Is that what you need this morning? A reminder that the Lord has not forgotten you? A fresh taste of what God has done for you? A revival of your own spiritual life that maybe now is in the doldrums or in the desert places. A revival in your own soul because without that revival within you, we'll never see revival in this land. Send a revival, says the hymn. Start the work in me. Is that your prayer this morning? Make it so. And pray that the Lord, who did such work in you, would renew and refresh it again today. The Lord who delivered you will come to your aid once again. Then third, this memory of what the Lord had done fashioned how he hoped for the future. After establishing that this memory of the Lord's salvation had helped the psalm writer, and then after how he prayed that God would do that all over again in the present, then with an eye to the future, the image switches again in verse 5, is repeated and elaborated on in verse 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
Now, you note immediately it's a farming metaphor the psalm writer turns to. And if you've been on a farm anywhere, farming yourself, or if you have friends who farm, you'll know what an act of faith farming is. The ground is prepared, seed is planted, all the preparations have been made, but the harvest is entirely up to things over which you have no control whatsoever. Too little rain, too much rain, rain at the right time or the wrong time, and the farmer has to work and work and work and then pray and pray and pray and wait. There's something even more than an agricultural metaphor here, isn't there? It's not just sowing and waiting to reap. It's sowing in tears. And why does he mention tears? He does so because what is life if it's not a journey through one sad place filled with all darkness and grief and loss as a result of the fall? This isn't heaven. This world isn't a perfect planet at all. It's marred by sin to the point that we weep as God's people and sometimes tears are what we know. We lose all sense of hope. Those tears are real. Those aches and pains and losses and griefs are all meant to remind us that this is not our home, that we are just passing through, that we're looking for a better home. But the psalm doesn't end with tears. Look again in verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See here the psalmist's statement of faith and hope. Sowing in this world with tears now, but there's reaping to come with much joy. He knows that sowing in tears will lead to reaping with joy. He knows that the Lord will not forget his own. And even if there are many tears... And even if the night is terribly dark and the dawn seems so far off, and even if life ends in this way while we are still sowing in tears, his hope is that because he knows the God who holds the future, that the future is always bright for the people of God. Nothing will get in the way of God's plans for his people being fulfilled. You know, the end of the whole book of the Bible tells us that. At the end of all things, Jesus wins. And Paul says on this in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, there's tears now, and yes, life may end that way, but look at what's ahead. Look at the joy that will be God's people's forever. What joy and laughter will fill our mouths, what reaping there will be that will forever more than compensate for all that we've had to know and endure here in this valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you feel that acutely this morning, that life is a continual sowing in tears. Is that you? Wait, believer. Wait for the fullness of what is to come and see the rewards that God has for his people who remain faithful to him unto death.
Yes, this psalm is all based on a memory. A memory that was so powerful, of a rescue that was so dramatic, that the psalm writer had to pinch himself to believe that he was awake. And then he wondered, is it possible that the Lord could do that again? And so he prayed, Lord, do that again. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, 21st century believer? Here is an Old Testament saint, 500 years before your Saviour trod this earth, praying with a kind of faith and a kind of hope that is so rare. And now you and I, who know of how the Son of God gave his own self for you, his own blood for you, should we not have an even greater sense of this hope? Yes, there's trials ahead and disappointments and tears. But weigh these up against the prospect of the fullness of joy that we have only begun to taste that will be ours forever and ever. And this is God's promise. It's not my promise. It's God's promise. And you can believe it. And if you believe it, Make this your hope. The Lord has done great things for us, great things. So loved he the world. He gave us his Son. And in him, to those who believe, all things and much, much more than we could ever hope for or dream of. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember his grace. Count upon it for the future. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to thank you, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a deliverance that was that turned the disciples' sorrow and tears into laughter and joy when they saw you again on the other side of the grave. How we thank you for the resurrection that gives us hope how we thank you for what you've done in our lives, causing us to know you, to come to you, to believe you, how we thank you for the great things that you have done and the great things you have planned for your people, things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. So encourage us today with these words of this psalm as we go about sowing in tears, May we reap with much joy and see the harvest that you will bring about in your time. We give you thanks and praise for your work in our lives. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.